Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Is it possible to maintain a consumption-driven economy that doesn't trash our home or lead to massive inequality? Climate One conversations feature energy suppliers and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Norway seems like a country that has it all. The world's largest sovereign wealth fund, supported exclusively by petroleum revenues, that has allowed the country to electrify its economy and lead the way in clean energy technologies. It's a sort of country of paradoxes. On the one hand, it's Western Europe's biggest oil producer. On the other hand, it's probably the biggest market in the world for electric cars. Richard Milne is Nordic and Baltic correspondent for the Financial Times. He'll join us later on today's show, along with Norwegian Minister of Climate and Environment, Sveinung Rotevan, to talk about fighting climate change while pursuing fossil fuel capitalism. It's like being a drug dealer that doesn't use his own product. It's basically the hard truth of it. That's Hope Jaren, a professor in the Department of Geoscience at the University of Oslo, and author of The Story of More, How We Got to Climate Change and Where to Go From Here. She joins us in the first part of the show to explore how fighting climate change often involves grappling with issues of wealth, power, and patriarchy. There's a classic prisoner's dilemma here, that the individual firm has every incentive to run as hard as possible. The the problem is collective, so we have to get business as a whole to act. Rebecca Henderson is a professor at the Harvard Business School and author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. I began our conversation by asking Rebecca whether capitalism, as a system for making more stuff in order to sell more stuff, is fundamentally flawed. We have a pricing and regulatory problem. We're not charging the full costs of economic activity. I don't think of capitalism as a system for producing more. I think about it as a system for producing efficiently. It, uh, it makes sure that the right people do the right things at the right time. And when it's working well, it's just fantastic. I, I don't think we're going to solve the problems we face without capitalism. But we have to have real prices and real regulation. So let's just take beef, for example. Um, the production of beef is uh, responsible for a very significant fraction of agricultural emissions and takes up an enormous amount of the planet's land. And so every time we eat a hamburger, we're in effect causing very significant harm because we are personally participating in warming the planet. And yet beef is super cheap. We're not paying for the harm that we're causing. And so every kind of light in the system says more beef, more beef, more beef, because it's cheap and people love it. And so we need as a society to be able to say, you know, beef is amazing, but it should be rare. It should be special. It should be offset um, and beef should be expensive. And so we will fix this. In fact, it's fairly clear to see how to fix it. The the only thing it requires is a massive cultural and political movement changing the rules that constrain capitalism. But as soon as we can do that, we're done. We, we, We know how to fix this problem. Rebecca, you're quite optimistic, and you point out in your book a lot of examples of of companies acting in kind of uh, uh, enlightened self-interest and incite leaders that are doing things kind of on the margins, uh, you know, the Patagonians of the world, the Paul Pullmans, the Unilevers of the world. But companies are also 
uh, doing one thing and their very slick communications. When it comes to policy, they play a double game. They they speak about climate change in public, but their lobbyists and their firms in Washington D.C. do either don't push on climate policy or they actively try to slow it down. Uh, they support the Paris Climate Accord. Yes, you know they tweet about uh, Trump backing out of Paris, etc. But they don't really put a lot of muscle or effort into climate policy where it matters inside the Beltway. They're much more concerned with taxes, immigration, those sorts of things. They're afraid of alienating the other side. So I'd like you to respond to that double game that that I think companies play. Even some of the most sincere uh, chief executives don't really lean in on policy in places where we're in, in the dark halls of power. I think it's super important to differentiate between different companies. Um, There are some companies that are behaving really badly indeed. They're funding massive public relations campaigns saying, we can keep burning fossil fuels, it's the future, it's going to be great. And at the same time, they are pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, modern day forms of climate denialism and into politics in ways that have been totally destructive. I think there are some firms that are trying to behave better. And yes, they're doing things inside their own operations. Um, So I'm good friends with uh, Hugh Welsh, who runs uh, the US operation of a chemical company called DSM. And he's very active in introducing innovations like clean cow, which is a pill you give to cows to stop them farting as often. It turns out that cow farting and cow belching is a huge source of methane. And so it would be really good to reduce that. So DSM is funding a number of projects like that. They're very sustainably oriented. They talk about it in public. And one of the things that Hugh has been doing is is working with the Chamber of Commerce to change the Chamber's position on climate change. So there are firms that are acting consistently. Unilever, for example, is absolutely front and center in pushing for uh, changing climate policy. If you think of the alliance called We Are Still In, that's working with governors and states right across the US, they've succeeded working in partnership with governors and uh, local NGOs in putting in place commitments that will get the US to within shouting distance of the Paris Agreement. So there are firms out there that are trying. Are there firms that are saying all kinds of good things and doing bad things? Yes. Are there firms that are saying they care about climate but not advocating for it? Yes. Do we have to change them? Absolutely. But I think it's a mistake to tar all of business with the same brush. One of the things that uh, ultimately underlines some of that is the concentration of of power. Because we have, and Rebecca, you write about how the top, was it top 40 people in the world control as much wealth as the bottom 50%, which just is, uh, how is that not shameful in any system that produces that amount of concentration of wealth and power? And Hope Jaron, you write about GMOs are safe for humans to eat, but farmers are forced to buy seeds from near monopolies, Monsanto and DuPont. So I'd like to hear Hope talk about that concentration of power, which you write about You know, in, in Iowa, how the small farms have gotten smaller and the huge farms have gotten huger. And we have this disparity of power that underlies all of this, Hope. Yeah, I mean... There's also a a fundamental question here in the changing nature of human labor, right? So, so there were folks that were very concerned with population increase in the seventies and, you know, how was the earth going to feed all these people? And a tremendous amount of um, research was done on plants and animals and it resulted in a whole new set of, you know, brave new world, uh, all new consortium of creatures, really. I mean, farming just doesn't take as many people because, you know, to get a bushel of corn, you used to have to, you used to have to plant a basketball sized court, and now you can get it out of about a parking space. You know, pigs used to have five piglets a year. Now mother pigs have 10 piglets a year, twice a year. Right. And so the amount of food that we can create per unit labor has just skyrocketed. And so uh, that that labor has been consolidated using, you know, industrial um, fossil uh, industrialized fossil fossil fuel driven industrialization. 
Yeah, I mean, enhanced technology and enhanced yield, wildly enhanced yield, which has always been done through breeding, um, is is changing the amount of labor that's needed to produce way too much food, right? And so also the seed folks are just a few people producing all of this food. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to ask questions about, you know, is it right to have the entire country's food supply concentrated into the hands and pockets of a few people to to sell and withhold as they see fit? By mass producing all this and way too much, you know, I mean, corn is the great example. We can't find weight. We turn it into sugar and squirt it all over everything. We can't even cram it down our mouths fast enough. We're having to turn it into fuel. We burn fuel to plant corn, to grow corn, to turn it into fuel, to fuel automobiles. It's like an environmental Mobius strip. It's, I mean, we're doing crazy things at this point just because we can produce so much food and we are desperate to do something with it besides feed truly hungry people. Rebecca, your thoughts on that, addressing that, that concentration of power in, in capitalism in, in corporate America right now that has essentially kind of taken over the government. Who's going to tackle that concentration of power and are we going to solve climate? Because climate challenges presents costs to some of that concentrate, that, that very concentrated power. I don't think we're going to solve climate change until we address the concentration of economic power. And that means both addressing inequality and changing the rules of the game. Um, I'm sure we need to get political. I, I talk a bunch about genuinely free and fair capitalism. And free and fair capitalism means you compete hard against other firms. It, it means you don't go to Washington and change the rules such that there are just a few of you in control fixing the prices. And we have increasing evidence pushing down wages. One of the reasons inequality has increased is because economic power has become so much more concentrated. So labor has to work for a few, you know, people have to work for one of a few firms. And at the same time, that concentrated economic power is pushing back against moves like raising the minimum wage or may I get topical, guaranteed sick leave, um, or comprehensive health care. I mean, these, these moves that would really help um, the lower 50, the poorer 50% of the population are actively resisted by this concentrated power. Um, and I think we have to fix inequality because without it, we won't generate the political momentum to address climate change and because we should fix it for its own sake, let me say. And we have to we have to fix politics. So one of the things I find myself saying a lot, and I know how crazy this sounds, is that business should get actively involved in remaking our political institutions, in making democracy much more ground level, much more responsive, and please in pulling money out of politics. So I think business is going to suffer immensely from the current situation and that the smart thing to do is realize that and say, okay, let's disarm, let's pull the money out, let's pull ourselves out, let's put um, the government, a, a partnership between government and business at the heart of our society in the service of the whole society. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about reimagining capitalism. Coming up, how power and patriarchy can be just as big an impediment to progress on climate as elsewhere. What I've never understood is why people are surprised to find that these truisms that are so core to surviving as a woman also have their expression within academia and within science per se. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about capitalism and the climate crisis with Hope Jaron, professor at the University of Oslo and author of The Story of More, and Rebecca Henderson, 
professor at the Harvard Business School and author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Rebecca writes that she grew up with a bifurcated identity, keeping her business consulting job and passion for nature in separate boxes. At the time, it seemed natural. Uh, my professional life was what I went off to do. I made money. I kept my head down. And in my spare time, I walked in the mountains and hugged trees. It came to an end when I saw Al Gore's movie. My brother, who's a freelance environmental journalist, had been sending me scientific papers for some time. So I knew that climate change was an issue, but it wasn't until the film that it really came home to me. And uh, I'm one of the people for whom it completely changed my life. I came back to the office. I emailed everyone on my contact list. I told them that this was the number one problem and we had to focus on it now. And you grew up, right, that you grew up, uh, spent hours in trees and developed a, a deep love of nature. But then you worked at a consulting company, you know, closing down factories and became a chaired professor. So tell me about that, that love of trees, hanging out them and reading them. My uh, family was a little troubled when I was growing up, like so many families. And so I spent an enormous amount of time outside. There was one tree in particular that I loved. It was a 300-year-old copper beech. It must have been three stories high. And it had a huge branch about six foot off the ground that you could lie on and look up at the sky through the branches of the tree. And for me, there was nothing more beautiful and nowhere more safe. The smell of the trees, the sunlight filtering down through the, through the leaves, it became my touchstone. I think it's the reason I'm so emotionally engaged with, with protecting the natural world right now. But at the same time, I knew one had to make a living. So I went to, uh, went to MIT and got an engineering degree. I thought that was my quickest route to, uh, to a steady job. Hope, Jaron, your book, Lab Girl, was a story of trees, love, and science. In it, you write that a tree's wood is its memoir. Trees rings tell its age and story. How have trees been important for your understanding of your own story? Um, I started studying trees when I was a graduate student um, because I felt like they would give me enough mystery to, to last me my whole life as a scientist. I um, started out in college studying rocks, and I studied soil as a graduate student. And I, I remember making experiments that were designed to bring, you know, the climate together. And, and I was going to measure, you know, aspects of the weather and aspects of the field and the, you know, the water availability and all this kind of stuff. And then I was going to measure, you know, the tree's performance. And it came time for the trees to kind of do their part and bloom and produce fruit and everything like that. And, and none of them produced any fruit. And not just the trees at my site, but none of the trees in the county. And nobody knew why. I, I talked to the local landowners and ranchers, and this was in, in Colorado, and they said, yeah, trees just do that sometimes. And <laughs> it was kind of, I don't know if it was early or late in my scientific development, but there I was, a grad student, and I sort of realized, you know, these trees aren't here so that I can have a successful PhD. They're trying to do something for themselves. I mean, they're living their own lives and they're trying to accomplish something. And fruit is part of that. It's a, it's a strategy that's useful at certain times for certain things. And it's also an activity with a cost. You know, it, it costs energy and et cetera. And so invoking that is not for my benefit. It's, it's part of a larger mystery that that will take a long time to even get close to. I, I, could, I could feel that intuitively. And so I turned my attention toward trees and toward small plants and sort of what does it mean to be a plant and how, how, do, you, how do you respond to, to the basics of life? And, and those were the experiments I've, I've done ever since. 
you both write about some of the the gender barriers in, in your careers and having to uh, encounter sort of the male dominance in, in science and business. Um, oceanographer Sylvia Earle broke the glass ceiling in science. In 1970, she joined other scientists living undersea for up to 60 days. I interviewed Sylvia Earle a few years ago in front of a live audience. Here's a clip we played from the documentary Mission Blue that shows how the first group of female aquanauts was portrayed. Now a team of divers will attempt to live for two weeks as quiet residents on the sea floor. Ironically, these aquanauts are not men with extraordinary physical endurance and stamina, but five young and attractive women, the world's first real-life mermaids. Their leader is a renowned scientist, Dr. Sylvia Earle, a marine botanist and an experienced diver. That's a clip from 1970 talking about Sylvia Earle and some other scientists, uh, female scientists, breaking into the the world of bearded men scientists. Hope Jaron, you're 50 years ago. I know you've encountered some of that. We're told one, at one point to have prevented from entering your lab, I think, because you were pregnant. So how far have we come in that 50 years since that uh, was recorded? Um, I think the problems in science in terms of sexism are part and parcel with the basic challenges of walking through the world wearing a woman's body. I mean, I think that, the, you know, feminist theory brings us back to um, uh, violence against women, reproductive rights, and equal pay for equal work. And, and the, those are the three core issues that that we struggle with in in every profession in every field of life in every every theater of of being and academia has has problems around each of those you know we have harm violence rape murder you know in in academia and in in science right we have problems being paid equally for equal labor and we also have tremendous awkwardness at the very least and and discrimination associated with women um, uh, invoking their fertility and, you know, having children, taking care of children, et cetera. And so, um, yes, I, I think those things are with us. They find a different expression culturally as we move through time. But, um, I feel that this is our piece of the struggle. What I've never understood is why people are surprised to, to find that these, these truisms that, that are so core to, to, to surviving as a woman also have their expression within academia and within science per se. Rebecca Anderson, you write about uh, presentations, giving presentations in the highest heels you can imagine. And you said that sometimes you get concerned if you start talking about values or purpose, they'll write you off as a simpering female. You know, what's been your experience uh, in the business world and business education? This is very controversial. But I think it's sometimes useful to think about men's way of looking at the world versus women's way at looking at the world. And it's controversial because, of course, men are very different and women are very different. So I'm talking about a central tendency, a particular expression of masculinity, which I think one sees in the business world, that life is about competition, life is about the individual, life is about aggression, and that that's what we strive for. And life is also about rational thought, about managing the numbers, about showing that you're smart. And as I say, I don't mean to say that that's like men and this is like women, but that central tendency, that way of being in the world has become very dominant in the business community. And in my own career, um, I thought it was necessary to learn that language and to be able to really participate in that conversation. I mean, it's one of the reasons I have an undergraduate degree in engineering and a PhD in economics. I wanted there to be absolutely no doubt that I could handle the numbers, understand the bottom line, compete as hard as any of the rest of them. Um, and I still find now when my research is more than ever focused on questions of 
you know, what we sometimes call mushy stuff. This drives me crazy as if values and emotions were somehow not real or not important, when in reality, as we know now from the modern psychological research, most people are driven most of the time by their emotions and their values. And all the rational stuff we come up with is our forebrain making up excuses for what the subconscious is just cruising through. Um, so yes, th this has been a real tension in my life in the last 10, 15 years. Um, there's one sort of story I, I sometimes tell to illustrate it. So I, I teach students about climate change and the dangers it represents. And I often say, but there's a business case. As business people, we can make money by developing solutions to this problem. And that's really important. And again, I'm generalizing horribly, but many of the men will come up to me and say, Rebecca, you know, tell me more about that business case. I want to be really certain. And, and far more of the women come up and say, wait, we're destroying the planet in the service of our bottom line. Uh, how do we stop doing that? You know, it, it's, and again, it, it's a generalization, but that is the tension in our society uh, that I think we all have to live inside. Hope, Jaron, I've heard, I've learned from some environmental activists, climate justice activists about how racism, patriarchy are really at the root that a lot of the conversations I've had about climate changing this technology, changing this policy, don't get to that deeper root. And they would say that getting back to more communal, community-based, nurturing system away from patriarchy is essential for really solving climate. What do you think? Well, the, where I run into it the most is when I talk to people about overpopulation. And I've had a number of men really... Um, come up to me and with with seem, seemingly like some pretty severe neurosis about about you know these uncontrollable women everywhere having baby after baby <laughs> and and the planet is doubling and doubling beyond control i looked into it and and people have been freaking out about overpopulation basically since they were able to count each other um, there's all these writings from Mesopotamia talking about, you know, can the earth uh, handle, you know, all, all these people occurring. Um, one thing that uh, I did a lot of research on my on my last book, The Story of More, and the one thing that we can see with lowered um, birth rates is that when the gender gap closes, that means when opportunity, economic opportunity, health outcomes and also political participation is close between men and women within a society, then the number of children born within a woman's lifetime is low, uh, low at replacement level or, or, or even lower than that. And that doesn't um, just apply to rich countries. It uh, doesn't mean that there's an awful lot of opportunity there. Uh, it just means that the that men and women are sharing in the amount of opportunity and, and justice and fairness there. And uh, that is where we have the lowest number of births per woman's lifetime. So I always say that the only surefire way we can reduce population growth is to close the gender gap. Um, and uh, that if that isn't fundamental to reversing or slowing down the damage to the earth by <laughs> I can't think of a of another example more tightly correlated to um, patriarchal inequality than that. And as we look to the future, Hope Jaron, you talk about some improvements in, in uh, the human condition. Prenatal care has increased, drinking water more available, immunization rates are up, poverty's down. Uh, you also write about you know anxiety, depression, rampant among people who are climate conscious. I think anyone who's climate conscious has some anxiety, depression at different at different moments. So how do you look at the future, knowing the data you cite, Hope, but also the climate reality and the anxiety and depression you write about? I have always believed that, and I was taught that love is a gift and hope is a duty. And that if you want to be hopeful, that requires courage. And that we don't have the option to give up on the world that we compromised right? Every generation is consigned to grapple with the possibility of its own annihilation, and this is ours, right? And answers in the past have come from places that were unexpected or even unwelcome. 
And those solutions were sometimes too late for many, but they were never too late for all. I am a climate scientist, and so my whole life is full of people working hard to get the data to show what's happening and to monitor the earth as if it were a sick patient. We don't quite know what the diagnosis is. We don't quite know what the treatment is, but we're very concerned that the earth is not well and not getting better. You know, that being said, I have to admit that being part of climate change solutions research is probably about the most fun thing as a scientist you can even think of because every idea is on the table. It doesn't matter how how crazy something sounds. You can always get somebody who will sit down and talk about how to scale that up to the point where it changes the world. Yes, we're we're talking about something that reflects, you know, damage and harm, but that's what makes it so important. And that's what brings such energy to anything that might look like a solution. And it's not going to be a single sweeping solution. There's going to be a million little solutions that come together, at least in the short term, in order to turn things around. Um, And I feel very hopeful and very positive. I don't know if it's just part of who I am or who I want to be or the kind of people that I spend my time with, but I can feel that we're close to some really good things just because of the amazing people I know who care so very much. Rebecca Henderson, how do you feel about the future? And can you talk about that with your whole self openly at Harvard Business School? I, too, am very hopeful. I have a friend called Eric Osmundsen, who some years ago bought a garbage company in Norway. He thought that transforming the waste business, making it a recycling business, was one of the most effective things he could do to make a difference against climate change. But after he bought the company, he found the whole industry was radically corrupt. People were mislabeling waste and shipping it to Africa. They were dumping toxic chemicals into the fjords. When he went public with what was happening, he got death threats. His children had to have police protection at school. I ask him sometimes if he regretted what he did. And he looks at me as if I'm crazy. He says, it's nothing special about me. It's the team. It's just what had to be done. Of course, that was a bad time and I had to talk to my wife about it. But but he is so excited about what he's been able to do. He's been able to transform the garbage business right across Scandinavia. Um, He's made a good deal of money, which is great. But what he cares about is the difference he's made in the world. And I meet people like that all the time. When I started teaching Reimagining Capitalism, there were 28 students in the room. Now we have nearly 300, nearly a third of the second year class. The students eat, breathe and sleep this. You know, what can we do to make our world more just and more sustainable? Humans are infinitely resourceful. Do I think things are likely to get worse before they get better? Absolutely. I really do. I don't think there's an easy or quick or cheap solution, but I do think we will solve these problems, yes. Rebecca Henderson is a professor at the Harvard Business School and author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. We also heard from Hope Jaron, professor in the Department of Geoscience at the University of Oslo. This is Climate One. Coming up, We'll take a deeper look at Norway as an oil-rich state that's trying to go greener. I'm happy to report that our emissions have been going down three years in a row now, and they're predicted to keep going down steadily. But my job as Minister of Climate and the Environment, obviously, is to implement more policies to make them go down even faster. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. When it comes to fossil fuel capitalism, is Norway the perfect example of having it all or just a walking contradiction? Every article I write about this, the main comment is, you know, Norway's just a hypocrite. Richard Milne is Nordic and Baltic correspondent for the Financial Times. We spoke about Norway's split personality on energy and climate change along with Sveinung Rotevan, the Norwegian Minister of Climate and Environment. 
I began by asking Richard whether Norway is really a climate hero or a climate hypocrite. That's the big question, really. It's such an interesting debate because it's a sort of country of paradoxes. On the one hand, it's Western Europe's biggest oil producer. On the other hand, it's probably the biggest market in the world for um, uh, electric cars. Uh, it's got the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund that is entirely funded by petroleum revenues. And on the other hand, it's an ethical uh, forerunner that isn't invested in coal, isn't invested in some oil companies. It spends a lot of money on conservation abroad. Um, it's got some criticism about what it does in conservation at home. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Minister uh, Rotevan, your take on that, the contradictions, do you under agree with those uh, kind of dual personalities of Norway? <laughs> Well, I, I think I'll agree that there is certainly a, a paradox uh, uh, surrounding my country uh, because, um, uh, as Mr. Milne says, we are a world leader when it comes to implementing climate-friendly technologies, uh, electric cars, um, uh, CO2 uh, storage, um, public transportation, what have you. Uh, but on the other hand, obviously, we have been for many decades and, and are still a major uh, oil and gas producer. Uh, and even though we are um, getting more uh, restrictions on uh, on petroleum, uh, we're still producing, we're still exporting. Uh, and uh, I guess a lot of the people see that as a paradox. Uh, but I mean, uh, it's important to bear in mind also that the debate surrounding petroleum is, is very much alive in Norwegian politics. Uh, there's one expression that you hear uh, more than almost any other expression, and that is, what is the new oil? So everyone is always looking for the new oil. You know, what is, what are we going to be making a living out of for the next decades? And I think in some ways that is a bit of an exaggerated debate because oil and gas isn't the only thing that uh, people in Norway are, are uh, working on. And we, ha we have uh, markets that are uh, really promising and that are increasing in importance, like uh, fisheries, for example, uh, that is uh, our second biggest export. We're still a strong industrial nation. I think we're pretty much the only uh, industrialized, uh, at least Western nation, that still has a shipbuilding industry of any proportion, for example. Uh, so uh, there are lots of promising businesses for the future. But I mean, ever since the 70s and up till today, uh, oil and gas has been increasing in importance and is still our major industry. Several European countries have reduced their carbon emissions since 1990. Germany and the UK are down somewhere around 40%. Norway's total emissions are up over 1990. So uh, with a country that's the second richest country in the world, is that a really good record to be basically increased emissions over such a, such a long period of time for a country that claims to be so green? Uh, no, uh, it's not a good record. Uh, and I mean, I mean, I belong to a, uh, a, a liberal green party. So, I mean, we've been critical of government climate policies for many years. So it's easy for me to be critical. However, I think there are some nuances to the story that need to be told. Uh, one important nuance is that uh, what most other countries are working on to reduce their emissions uh, isn't really anything that is uh, available in Norway. And that is simply because we're there already. Uh, for example, when it comes to our power production, you know, it's close to 100% renewable already and has been for many years. So there are no coal plants to phase out, for example. Uh, and, and also when it comes to heating, for example, in houses, that's all electric and not fossil fuel based. So, so, so there are some problems that we simply don't have uh, where other countries have reduced their emissions quite heavily. Uh, however, though, uh, the reason why our total emissions have increased since 1990 a little bit uh, is because the major increase in oil and gas production over the 1990s, especially, and that leads to obviously indirect emissions when you sell oil and gas to other countries, but it also has quite big direct emissions from the uh, gas-fired power plants on the uh, on the production facilities. And also, uh, uh, emissions from road transport in Norway have increased a little bit since 1990, uh, and that is because uh, there are one million more Norwegians today than there were in 1990. Uh, we have a huge increase in population, and in a country of 5.3 million people, that is a lot. Uh, also, our gross domestic product has doubled uh, since back then. So so, uh, so that, that's the main reason why our total emissions have been up since 1990. But uh, I will also, I'm also happy to report that our emissions have been going down over the last few years. They're down three years in a row now, and they're predicted to keep going down steadily. But my job as Minister of Climate and the Environment, obviously, is to implement uh, more policies to make them go down even uh, faster.
Richard Milner, are you as optimistic as the Minister Rotevan about the prospects for a new oil to power Norway's economy? Well, he he said new oil is the the trendy phrase. I mean, I think the, the another one is the green shift they talk about in the or the green change. And I, I am a little bit more sceptical because I think if you look at the last time oil prices um, were under pressure, which was 2014, 2015, again, there was a lot of discussion about a green shift in the economy. Um, and not, uh, I think at the, the top level, not a lot happened. Um, I think it's admirable, some of the things they're trying to do, but oil is such a huge part. It is still the biggest industry, still the biggest export industry and it also seeps into Norway um, uh, through the state coffers. Uh, uh, Norway is about to use a record uh, amount of uh, money from the oil fund into its budget um, and that makes the state um, therefore sort of indirectly uh, supported and propped up um, and, and that's hard to turn off once you started using that money in the budget. So. Um, on the other hand, I would have to say Norway is a very lucky country in many ways. I mean, it had these huge oil reserves that it's used, that it's, um, uh, you know, very cleverly put into a sovereign wealth fund. Um, but it also has, as the minister just says, it has nearly 100% hydroelectric power. Um, you know, that's an incredible uh, situation to be in. I mean, it has very rich fish resources as well, a beautiful country um, in terms of tourism. So, you know, there, there is a possibility there. Um, I just think that probably you don't really kill the goose that uh, lays golden eggs uh, until you have to. And so, I mean, that's going to be the, the, the question is how quickly can you wean yourself off oil? So, Minister Rotevan, is Norway going to basically milk that goose until there's no more oil to uh, to get out of it, take all the oil out of the ground? Uh, well, the answer is is no. Uh, and um, actually, already uh, a lot of very promising um, areas out at sea where there are big petroleum resources are uh, held off from the petroleum industry and are preserved. Uh, mostly due to political negotiations. Like, so for my party, for example, it was important when we uh, debated going into government that some very vulnerable areas uh, on the Norwegian continental shelves are kept away from the oil industry. Uh, and just recently, we introduced a new uh, white paper to parliament uh, where we're drawing a clear line in the north, in the Barents Sea, where we're saying that uh, uh, north of that line, there will be no petroleum activity uh, whatsoever. And we're the only Arctic country uh, to introduce such a uh, clear limit to petroleum activities uh, in the high north. Uh, so there are political debates ongoing all the time about restrictions on the oil industry. And I would also like to say that I think it's debatable whether Norway wants to you know, kill that goose or not, because uh, what we are uh, certainly promoting uh, continuously uh, uh, internationally uh, is policies to uh, halt the demand for our main export. You know, uh, you know, we're a major player in all climate negotiations. We're highly active on the EU level, even though we're not a member. Uh, trying to have enhanced climate targets, more restrictions on fossil fuels, uh, more efforts put into renewables. So in many ways, you, you could say that we're sort of advocating internationally to stop the demand for our own main export. Uh, and if that isn't the paradox, then I don't really know what is. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the split personality of Norway as a major oil producer and a major uh, country pushing toward cleaner energy. My guests are Richard Mill, Nordic and Baltic correspondent for the Financial Times, and Sveinung Rotevan, Minister of Climate and Environment with Norway and the Liberal Party. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Richard Mill, another aspect of this is the, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, over a trillion dollars, the largest in the world. Uh, you and your colleagues at the Financial Times have covered that. So how much of a player is that in the, you know, in the, the green side of this? Because that's the side that, that Norway is a fairly progressive actor in Indonesia, Brazil, other places. Well, I, the Sovereign Wealth Fund for me is the biggest story in the Nordics. Um, 
uh, it's pretty much invested in every single company in the world. So um, it has enormous power. And I think it's still actually figuring out how just how much power it's got. Um, it was in the beginning a very progressive um, investor, seen as very ethical um, uh, and was at the forefront of ethical investing. I think in recent years, um, it's kind of fallen down that ranking and it's come under quite a lot of pressure. Even in Norway, there are um, some uh, other investors that are ahead in terms of sort of climate change risk. Um, and that's something that it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a very active debate about recently. So the government um, proposed not so long ago that the fund should uh, get out of um, some oil and gas companies, very, very limited number, certainly none of the biggest ones. Um, and it's a very difficult position also for Norway to be in. I mean, every article I write about this, the main comment is, you know, Norway's just a hypocrite. It's made all this money from oil. You know, now it's trying to um, act uh, all enlightened. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Norway is Western Europe's largest oil producer. That's the starting point. So, I mean, anything else it can do over that, you, you know, has to be applauded. But um, I think it could probably raise its ambition levels a, a bit higher. Uh, Minister Rotevan, uh, I'd like to talk about the prospects for tourism. We've been talking about a post-oil future uh, for for Norway. Uh, the melting and the warming in the Arctic is opening up to tourism, resource extraction, etc. I had the opportunity and the privilege of going to Svalbard recently, beautiful archipelago that's a remote part of, of Norway, um, where there used to be coal. And now there's there's research, international climate research, and increasingly tourists like me toddling around. Uh, I went to Longyearbyen, where... Um, that day I was there that uh, Robert Plant, the former lead singer of Led Zeppelin, was performing. And it showed me either how, you know, he, he's going down or, you know, Long Year Ben is coming up, maybe both. Uh, but when Led Zeppelin comes to a little town in the Arctic, that tells us something about uh, tourism. So is that a big part of the future? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and you're happy, uh, lucky rather, to have been able to go to Longyearbyen. I mean, it's a fantastic spot. Uh, maybe not that environmentally friendly. I mean, it, this is probably the one place in the world with a biggest carbon footprint per capita because you know there are i guess around 1800 people living there and they have their own coal fired coal fired power plant uh because that's the way they get their energy but uh, and never mind uh, it's a fantastic place to go uh, and if if you're looking for something that is the most northern in the world you're going to find it there you're going to find the most northern hotel the most northern police station the most northern liquor store etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean this G- is gas station the most northern gas station also yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely no, I think there is a big future in, in tourism. But uh, um, uh, actually, uh, when I was younger, um, I had a, a summer job over quite a few summers where I was guiding tourists uh, around the western fjord landscapes of Norway. And the main attraction that we took them to uh, was this huge glacier uh, that's been there for, for, for centuries and centuries. And uh, one thing I noticed was that every summer when we came back, the glacier was a bit smaller and a bit smaller and a bit smaller. So... Uh, I was actually able to see global warming firsthand from a very young age. Uh, and this is something that we're still seeing, you know, all around Norway and certainly in the high north where temperatures are increasing faster uh, than other places on the planet. Svalbard, for example, where you were lucky to go, we've had a temperature increase of not 1.5 or 2 degrees, but 5 degrees since the 1970s. So things are warming faster up there. Uh, and the consequences are quite dire for from everything from, you know, small species that you've never heard of to polar bears. Uh, so uh, global warming is a frightening prospect uh, in the north. Uh, but uh, tourism is one of our big industries, and it's one of the industries that have been increasing the fastest over the uh, last couple of years. I guess this year they're probably going to have a little bit of a setback, but uh, I think there is a big future in tourism for Norway. Richard Milne, as we wrap up, what's the story you'd like to crack in terms of Norway's uh, so, uh, sovereign wealth fund and its its conflicted uh, relationship with oil? What would you like to crack? What story would you like to find? Well, I, I, I think it's even broader than the sovereign wealth fund. I mean, I, th- I think what the minister's talking about there, what's going on in the Arctic in Norway? I mean, Norway is actually the most aggressive country in drilling for oil in the Arctic. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's a, it, it's a crucial area of the world and working out what 
is sustainable in the Arctic, how you can have sustainable development. I mean, tourism is tourism. If you have lots of cruise ships, um, you know, is that sustainable? What happens if a cruise ship has an accident up near Svalbard? Is there any way of rescuing it? Um, fisheries, you know, fish farming is, you know, that's a, how sustainable is that? And, and, and when I've done reporting in the Norwegian Arctic, what you see is there isn't an easy answer. I mean, you can think that having oil there is problematic, but when you look at what could replace oil in terms of tourism, in terms of fish farming, you know, it's not that they're, they're not simple solutions either. So, I mean, it's a real, you know, to make the Arctic work as a place um, that you can have people uh, living there, working there, the economy is sustainable. I, I think that's going to be a huge, huge issue in the future. Last word, Minister Rotevon. It sounds like Norway is trapped by its wealth. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I wouldn't really say so. I think that we're uh, we're continuously working with uh, our our green shift. Uh, we are a quite dynamic economy. Um, there are new businesses uh, coming up all the time, and I, I think also that uh, you know it's easy to get uh, trapped, so to say, in uh, always focusing on natural resources and you know big industrial companies when you're talking about an economy. But I think the root of the Norwegian economy, uh, as is the root of most modern economies, uh, is its people and our service sector. And it's not like Norway became a very rich country when we found oil or when we started fish farming uh, or any, anything else. You know, Norway has been a rather wealthy country for a long time. And that is uh, mostly due to a, a country uh, with a high level of education. Uh, with very low corruption levels, with a strong and trustworthy bureaucracy, with an egalitarian culture, with rather small economic differences between people. And I think that is the most important uh, trait of the Norwegian economy and Norwegian society worth preserving for the future. And that is going to be the building block for a uh, ever-growing Norwegian economy, hopefully. We've been talking about Norway's dual identity as a major oil producer and a country pushing toward cleaner energy with Sveinung Rotevang, Norwegian Minister of Climate and Environment, and Richard Milne, Nordic and Baltic correspondent for the Financial Times. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate change by telling a friend about our show. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>